Carolyn Tuesday Part 2 will be coming to Netflix on Christmas Eve 2019. I hate Netflix so fucking much. Everybody and welcome to the AtCast, a podcast for the study of modern visual culture. I'm your host, my name's Soup, here to talk about Parasite. Did you know that this tune is about land disputes? What, what was that? <laughs> and I'm Renu, I guess. <laughs> so, if, if you don't know, this week at stands for Allegorical Tailspin because we'll be talking about Bong Joon-ho's Parasite. But before we get into that, I will explain myself. Okay, please. <laughs> so the thing, the thing I just did is the thing that the um, the sister character in Parasite does, um, where she's like Jessica, where don't da 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 da. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, and the tune that she sings that to is like a mnemonic device that people use in Korea, uh, where oh. they like use this the the melody of this song to like memorize information. Now the fun part about that is that this song is actually about. Um, Land disputes. It's about a, a, a like Dokdo Island, which is a uh, an island off the coast of Korea that basically Japan took in the war and was like, "This is ours now." You know, when they did the colonialism, and so <laughs> they took it and was like, "This is ours now." You made this. I made this, and it has been a hotly contested point of geography for a very long time. So. Basically, um, there's your fun fact of the day. Wow. <laughs> oh, thanks for that. <laughs> and, like, Korean anti-colonial threads go very, very deep. So, <laughs> there you go. There you go. Um, that's, a, that's a fun fact for you. That's a fun fact for you. Great. Anyway, before we actually talk about the movie. Yeah. What have we been up to? What have you been up to, Renu? I think you and I have both been playing games recently, which is awesome. Uh, so Correct. I've been playing through Bravely Second, which I kind of bought <laughs> on a whim. Oh no! Despite like, I I protested playing it because my favorite character from the first one isn't really in this one. Yep. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> you mean objectively he, the best character? Yeah, he's there in like the very beginning, but he doesn't even like do. He just goes away <laughs> yes yeah yep uh wait did you did you beat this game okay so no <laughs> i think i think i got about 60 levels into it before i just stopped playing and forgot to finish uh, i don't okay. know how the game ends yeah i don't i haven't everyone that i've talked to that has played this game has not finished it and so now I'm like, all right, well, <laughs> yeah. Now yeah, it's my yeah. solemn duty to see what the end is and if my favorite character comes back. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, I'm enjoying it because I liked the first game a lot. Uh, like the mechanics are still there. They've added things, like the whole bravely second mechanic, which allows you to stop time and take extra turns at the cost of like this 
time-based refillable bar that's basically an excuse for Nintendo to have microtransactions in their game. Yeah. Uh, But, like, because it's Nintendo... (laughs) Hold on. I always find it really funny that because it's Nintendo, it's also implemented in the most clumsy, like, useless way possible. It is. It's like... like (laughs) there's actually no incentive to spend money on the game because the mechanic itself is not like worth it enough to actually do money for exactly which i thought was kind of funny yeah nintendo is seems like they're trying to creep into the micro transaction market but they don't know how to do so without being morally wrong against children so, I mean, just look, just look at their mobile games, which to be fair is like kind of in the same boat where like they're bad, like because obviously microtransactions aimed towards children is like a morally not good place to be because you're, you're basically just like, okay, we're going to try to trick these children into spending something that they don't realize is real. And right. that sucks, but also it's hilarious because the games themselves are not like good enough to spend money on not that that like disincentivizes people from spending money because god knows um god knows people will spend money on bad games sure um and kids can't tell the fucking difference they're just like it's mario i want mario so they'll roll the gacha for mario or whatever Mm -hmm. um but yeah oh nintendo it's weird man (laughs) it's very strange yeah uh but yeah it's I'm having fun with it so far. Like, I don't know about the story, you know? (laughs) So, yeah, I think that that's a big part of why I didn't really finish it is that I liked the characters uh, enough-ish. I just don't think the story was very good. Yeah, like, so far, at least for me, it's not... Like, the story is so, like clumsy it feels like i really liked the whole sequence that they had at the end of the first game and that they put into the second game where uh you know tiz is in the pod and then you know you have the person revealed to be magnolia is the one that saves him and so you get to like point your the uh your your camera around you know mm-hmm. and look at the sequence it's cool but it felt like it was so clumsily implemented like in story-wise like like i it felt like something that they developed uh, as like a teaser for the second game, but they didn't actually had concretely developed the circumstances around it. Y- yeah, and I don't so, think they actually thought about it. Yeah, and, and so like you just have this co- character who like she has a pretty like design or whatever. It's fine, and she's meant to be like very mysterious but very charming, kind of like almost like a femme fatale esque character. But when she enters your party, she apparently crashed from the moon and it is so sudden like you just happen upon her and she's like yeah i I came from the moon and then your character gives her a magnolia flower uh, uh, to like kind of rouse her from her sleep and she's apparently so charmed by this that she ends up joining your party and that's it and it was in the span of like five minutes that you just (laughs) meet this stranger and she joins your party and you're apparently okay with this despite the fact that you're on a mission to save the pope and so (laughs) then later on she like you you're on your way to collect his who's the main character of the first game and he is stuck in this pod but the pod is in a tower that got taken over by the enemy and so the enemy realizes that Tiz is starting to wake up. And so 
your characters are like, oh no, we gotta go and save him. And then Magnolia is like, I got this. And she just like disappears from the rest of the party on her own like does this entire long sequence in in the whole like camera ar reality whatever thing where she takes down all these soldiers and all these bosses this big boss and saves tiz by herself and then the rest of the party shows up and it doesn't make any sense (laughs) (laughs) yeah it really doesn't nope it doesn't not even a little bit so yeah there's a lot of moments like that in the game where it feels very clumsy or it's just like (laughs) i don't know i guess because it's written for like a much younger audience that there's a lot of like really convenient moments of of like oh we happen to overhear this thing our party is like right over here and it'll like like pan over to where they're like eavesdropping right on the enemy and the enemy doesn't see them or they'll have moments where like uh i don't know if you remember this moment where tiz is uh, like the enemy is like approaching them and and clearly sees them and they're on the lookout for intruders and then tiz does the whole like star wars reference where he's like this is these are not the intruders you're looking for and then the enemy is so dumb that they're like i don't think those are the intruders we're looking for and then they leave So I'm like, okay, this story wasn't written for me. <laughs> no, Which, I mean, no. like uh, the uh, in the first game, it didn't feel quite as I don't know. Maybe my memories of it are not very good, but it didn't feel quite like this. <laughs> you know I, what I mean? I think it's it. Yeah, I, I would say that at least the early bits of the game are so disjointed because I I think that like the early parts of and I think Bravely Default as a whole was like mostly pretty good um like it was a little bit disjointed from what i remember but it was not nearly as disjointed as bravely second is yeah i think to be fair part of bravely default's charm was that it felt so much like you know kind of like a small scale final fantasy game where you know there's the towns aren't super big there's not a ton of npcs and it's just it just looks like, you know, a a DS Final Fantasy game. You know, it's you right. kind of like remember what that was like. And then right. they have like, you know, a sort of the same, but there's a different mechanic to like spice things yeah. up. Turn based battle system. And it just felt like. I mean, really, it just felt like a Final Fantasy game, but like with all the numbers filed off. And not even all of them filed off. And, yeah. <laughs> but that was that was a part of the charm of it. And I think that Bravely Second doesn't really carry that as well for various reasons, one of which is, like, whatever they decided to do with, with the story. Like, I, I do think it gets better. Like, I think it really sort of peaks in the middle. Because I remember okay. I was like, okay, like, I'm I'm having some fun with this now. And then I, like, at some point put it down and I never picked it back up. So maybe it wasn't that good. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> I I feel like the first game was also it kind of peaked somewhere in the middle, like before the I, whole. I I I completely agree. Happened. And yeah. I will I will say like I think um part of the charm of of the the first game was like as annoying as it was the looping mechanic where like you would just loop a world yeah. over and over again but yeah. every world was slightly different you could see what different characters were up to and that was like kind of charming yeah yeah, yeah. Like, I did actually like that yeah they actually had a lot of like really subtle characterization for a lot of 
characters that you wouldn't really think like the first like two villains that you defeat like that like jesse james like villains that you get like the monk and white mage classes for and you know in each consecutive world they get like a little bit closer and you're like that's kind of cute and it is that kind of stuff doesn't really happen in bravely second because while it does have oh god (sighs) okay don't spoil me no (laughs) i well okay here's the thing i will try not to um i don't know how far you are into the game but there is a hmm I uh, I just defeated the f- uh, f- let's see I got the first two asterisk classes and okay uh, I don't know I got the I got the fencer one as well okay so I got the f- four f- asterisk classes okay because well, I, I I I went against Jan and um so Nicholas Nikolai I I will t- I will tell you this. Because I don't mind spoiling this because I was so fucking mad when I learned about it and I don't oh want God. you to have to suffer. Um, there is a I point... I feel like you did this with me with this first game too. You spoiled me on the looping thing and so I knew to yes, brace yeah. myself. <laughs> okay. Well, I, I only wish to prepare you for the parts that I just think are a little bit like bullshit. Okay. Okay. There is a boss fight in Bravely Second uh, against okay. the... Um, who is the like? I think he, you fight him in the very beginning of the game. Like, who's that dude? Like that really strong guy. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like the main bad guy so far, and yeah. he has the little fairy girl so, with him. The yeah. only way that you break out of the loop and they don't signal us at all because, and I prom like okay, I'm I'm so upset about this fucking thing. Like years <laughs> later, because I think it's a really bad way of of using. Uh, it's so bad. It's such okay. a bad way to design your game, and you shouldn't do this. Where, so, basically, the main villain of Bravely Second has a fairy, like, um... Yes. Like, like the first you know, game. Like the first game. I don't remember what her yeah. name was. Um, I don't either. <laughs> but because of that, he has this, like, he has the ability to um, essentially, like, cheese you, like... You don't yeah. you don't get to win that fight. But what they don't tell you is that the way you're supposed to win that fight, um, eventually, because you will just like, you know, loop back around to it. The way you're supposed to win that fight is you're supposed to use the time stop mechanic, which is the <gasps> dumbest shit. No ever. So so if you don't have your points you're saved up for that thing, like say you happen to use it before this fight. You would have to wait for it to replenish. Well, I don't remember exactly how it is um, or how it works, but I will I will say this like. It's not a good way to design your game if you have a part of your game that is only like slightly diegetic, that's like only slightly um, integrated into your world and is also like that mechanic is connected to something like financial and outside the bounds of the game. That's you can't gummy. You cannot have you cannot have that be a central mechanic of your game. Like I don't think I don't think it would like put you in a situation where you have to like wait or whatever, but if you don't know to do this, you will loop forever. I only wow. I only realized this after looping an extra like 3 or 4 times oh, no. because <laughs> they don't signal this to you in any way and they just expect you to like be like oh I guess I'll just use the cool time stop mechanic which already feels like a cheese thing to do because it's it's like a mechanic that doesn't feel like it's supposed to be part of the game. 
Right. It's I I understand that it would that obviously like because it's called Bravely Second, like it it's cool to have that be used against the boss in, a, in an essential way. The problem is is that despite the fact that I've been playing this game for several hours now, or I have several hours of game time put into it, play time into it, it uh, I've only used that mechanic once. Oh, and it's I almost still never used that up. fucking thing. Yeah, but the thing is, is that you can't use it more than once unless you pay for it because it charges so slowly. It charges according to... In game time, like it says that it charges when you're in sleep mode. And so I've been leaving my 3DS in sleep mode. But even then, it barely charges at all. Like it, it's supposed to go up to like level like like three or something like that. And it's still at level one for me. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. It's it's crazy. Like <laughs> it's... you have a mechanic that you can't use hardly at all. And you, you you make that the uh, the main boss thing. I guess that's I yeah. Know. That's the only and I <laughs> I would understand if it was at the end of the game, but it's not. It's like in the middle. Like it's not even entirely in the middle. I don't think. Like it might be earlier than the middle part of the game. Yeah, you you honestly use it so little that you forget that it exists. So I. I legit was like, I'm doing something wrong. I had to look it up, and then I was so mad. <laughs> anyway, don't make that mistake like I did. You can sure. you can just skip doing the retries over and over and over and over again yeah. if you just click that button. And like, Great. oh, you know what it is? You don't even have to have points. I, it just stops time, and he's like, oh, no. And then he leaves without kidnapping Agnes or whatever. Oh, pretty sure that's like you. All you have to do is have had to stop time in the fight. Okay. Which is, oh, it was so annoying when I learned that. Anyway, um, <laughs> that is not how you should design your game. And unfortunately, <laughs> there were a lot of DS games that tried to do this. Um, at the very least, the one that was the least egregious, I think, was the um, uh the Wind Waker sequel on DS where you had to close your map to transfer one stamp from the top to the bottom. What? Uh, do you remember what that one was called? The boat one. Um, the Zelda game? I don't, Phantom I don't... Hourglass. It was Phantom Hourglass. Oh, okay. There was a point where you have to transfer a stamp from one map to another, and to do that, you just close your DS. Oh! <gasps> Because there's one map on the top and one yeah. map on the bottom. Oh and then my you god, open it again. dude! <laughs> it was really, it was That's pretty cute. That's some Metal Gear stuff, man. <laughs> yeah. So don't don't do don't do like do that. Don't do what Bravely Second does. Um, oh, it's funny. <laughs> speaking of uh, another game that does take advantage of the weirder parts of the Nintendo systems is has always been Pokemon. It's always been one of the weirder ones because there is. <laughs> Um, with in Sword and Shield, there are a bunch of Pokemon that evolve in really weird ways, and some that heard, come from yeah, yeah. previous generations that are also really yeah. weird. Like yeah. Inkay from the previous gens, I think it's a Gen Five Pokemon. I think Inkay is a Gen Five Pokemon. Uh, yes, because that was where Contrary started to exist. So the way you evolve it is it has to be past level like thirty-two or thirty or something. But you have to hold your DS upside down while while it levels up, like in the in the after battle screen, um, so that it will evolve because it's an upside down Pokemon. 
Oh my goodness. <laughs> um, and in the new generations, there's some real weird ones. Uh, there is a there is a Pokemon that uh, is called uh, Milkery or Milsery that only evolves if you spin. There's a spin mechanic in the game that has come from the uh, sixth gen where you could like do a little like spin in place by spinning your stick. But you just got to spin for a certain amount of time. And then once you stop, it will evolve because it's a whipped cream Pokemon and you're whipping the milk into cream. Oh. There is uh, the alternative Yamask in this version, which you have to have. It has to take 49 points of damage at least and not be knocked okay. out. And then you walk under Stonehenge and it evolves. That's really, really uh, a lot. <laughs> of course, Inke makes its return because uh, the Switch has gyroscopes. So that one is also in that. So anyway, Pokemon can sometimes be really weird in really strange ways. And if you didn't know about the mechanics, uh, it might be a little frustrating, but it's also hilarious sometimes. So it's like, <laughs> I guess. I don't know. I wasn't as mad about those as I was about bravely second because it just doesn't signal this to you at all like it would be one thing if they were if they were like more explicit about integrating that mechanic into the game but they're yeah. not so it's 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 just frustrating when you learn that you've been doing it wrong and you're right. like i just want to be done with this so you got to look it up online anyway anyway <laughs> um anything else what else have you been up to um i mean that's it's essentially it. It's just that and, and drawing and the usual stuff. Um <laughs> Cool. <laughs> I don't know. I'm 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 like I'm excited to see the end of this game now so that I can actually report to everyone and be like, I played it to the end. I can tell you what happens. I would like you to tell me what happens at the end, because I'm now curious. <laughs> oh, I forgot that the Magnolia, the new character, she's also an excuse to like have that same mini game from the first game of like rebuilding your town. Oh yes, except yeah. you're rebuilding her fort on the moon. <laughs> that was I thought that was kind of funny. Oh, and she also loves to talk about how she's a ball buster because, haha, isn't that funny that joke <laughs> where the enemies that ruined her fort. Were called balls. B A apostrophe A L. Yep. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Busting those balls. <laughs> she does not let you forget that she's a ball buster. No, she does not. <sighs> yeah. Oh, yeah. That's it. And I guess we ought to segue into what you've been up to because you already started talking about it. <laughs> yeah, I've been up to. I've been playing Pokemon. I beat Pokemon. Uh, I think on. Sunday, uh, we're you already beat it. Oh my god, dude! I, I think most most people who bought the game on launch have beat it by now. Um, oh, I take forever on Pokemon games. It took me like two weeks. Okay, yeah, it came out on like the ninth or something. I think. Anyway, hmm. um, yeah, I beat Pokemon. Um, I will say without spoiling anything, because uh, I know that you do probably want to play it at some point. Uh. It's super cute, actually. It's really, really good. Okay, how would you compare it to like Sun and Moon? Because I would say I it's better than <laughs> I would it. say it's better than Sun and Moon. Okay, that's okay. what I wanted. I, that's why I kind of waited on it too, because I, I was like, I need to know if it's better than Sun and Moon because I'm kind of struggling with finishing. It is, 
It is the best Bells. game since Gen 5, I would say. Oh, yeah. okay. It, it, it is the best game that has come out since since Gen 5. Um, maybe not counting the remakes of Gen 3, because I just love Gen 3 a lot. But, uh, yeah, ever since they made the switch to 3D modeling, I would say that Sword and Shield is, is the best just overall. Like, the models look... The, like, I know there's a lot of controversy about them using the same rigs and just changing the textures, but they actually do look pretty good. Um, like, they don't look amazing. Like, they're not, like, you know super high quality awesome graphics but they do look good like they look good enough i think they're the best that the 3d models have ever looked and that's really all we can ask at this point um and the animations for the moves actually do look quite good like the pokemons have basic animations but the effects for the moves actually look really good in in this generation i would say i think that the, all the mechanics that they've introduced are very interesting. Um, I like the raid system because it's an excuse to, uh, you know, have boss fights and you can play with your friends. And that's that's kind of neat, honestly. Like, uh, it's surprisingly more charming than I was expecting a gimmick to be. Uh, the game is actually not, like, the easiest Pokemon game ever. <laughs> oh, interesting. It's not particularly hard, but it can definitely catch you off guard. Like, there's some... The game is a lot smarter, I think, this time around. Like, the Pokemon tend to have stronger move coverages. Um, they're, they tend to more often than not... Like, especially if you don't, like, grind at all. But, like, even if you, even if you like, mess around in the wild area a little bit, like, a lot of the times the Pokemon will be of comparable level um, as long as you're not just going out and grinding a bunch of levels out. And the characters, I think, are a, are a, just a fucking grand slam. I think all the characters are so charming in this version um, compared to the last couple generations. Like, they're all super memorable. The The rival character, Hop, is is super cute. Um, and he actually has, like, more than a little bit char- of character development, which is really cool. Oh. Uh, and more than I really expected. Um, I, of course, love Marnie because she's adorable. Uh, and um, her, like, story stuff. Um, it's, there's not a lot of her story stuff, but it what it, what there is is really nice. Um, yeah, overall, I think this game is actually really, really good. I, <laughs> <laughs> and I will say that um, I thought Sun and Moon was, was good at the time, but... Like now, having played Sword and Shield, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna say Sun and Moon was better than X and Y, and not as good as Sword and Shield. I think Sword and Shield does a okay. lot of stuff better, and I might just still be salty about when Lusamine fuses with the Ultra Beast and then decides to fight you with a team of Pokemon instead of being a boss battle. Do you, do you remember this, Renu? Do you remember when she was like, ah, yes, now I will fuse with the Pokemon. You're like, whoa, that's really fucked up and weird. And then she was like, now we fight. I'm like, oh my god, am I gonna fight a boss right, battle? Right. And then she just <laughs> holds up a poke, she holds up a Pokeball, and you're like, no! It's like, wait, what was the point? <laughs> you're like, what was the, what was any of that for? And then like, you're like you're holding out hope that her last Pokemon is she's like I'm gonna fight you myself and it's not right. and you're like so upset about it. It would have been so cool though. <laughs> yeah, um, I will say that they have they have peeled back the edge uh, a great deal. It is definitely okay. not nearly as edgy as Sun and Moon was. 
<laughs> because okay. sun, sun and Moon, like, had some, like, actual, like, edge to it. You know, with Lusamine's mm-hmm. whole whole deal about like uh, I'm trying to replace the void of my dead husband with world domination, <laughs> and there was like all that like multiverse stuff where like um, it was suspected that one of the characters came from a version of uh, of like uh, you know a, a a version of Pokemon that was like a previous gen, and they were like it was it was like a basically like a confirmation of like multiverse theory in Pokemon, but. They've kind of done away with all... They've put that all to the side for for the moment, at least, as far as I can tell. And they're just like, we just want to make a Pokemon game where they do the Pokemon stuff. And it's, like, cute because it's it's like a sports tournament, so it really feels like... Um, it feels like when you watched the the Pokemon anime for the first time and you see Ash like watching a Pokemon battle in, like, the... Um, like, the, the... What is it? Like, the Elite Four, like, championship matches... And you're like, that's really cool. Mm-hmm. It feels a lot like that because it's so hyped mm. up as a sporting event. Um, and all of the gym leaders have like, like great personalities. And they like, and especially the early ones, they come up more often than um, any other gym leaders really do. Like, cause like sometimes gym leaders are just like nothing after you beat them. Um, right. But in Sword and Shield, they actually do pay a little bit of attention to the fact that like, well, they're still part of the like gym challenge and they'll like come and talk to you and stuff. So it's at that. I think that's really cool. Um, I think it's cool that they put a lot of work into making sure that the characters outside of you, the main character have relationships with each other and they maintain them. Um, oh, that's nice. I will say this about sword and shield um, as much as I, I, I love it. And as much as it has uh, charmed me, um, you can definitely feel where their re- constraints were like, the like the last i would say um fourth of the story is like so rushed and so fast because they were probably really crunched for time oh <laughs> you can you can tell like they have like cutscenes and stuff but like the writing just isn't as fleshed out as it could be and you could tell that like they wanted to do more with this they just didn't really have the time to do it which is like a, a real shame because um and, you know, like, Pokemon games have kind of always been this way, where, like, um, they, like, set up this grand story thing that happens, and then, like, it just kind of resolves, and you're like, well, okay, that's cool. I would say <laughs> Sun and Moon had one of the more invested, like, kind of in-depth ones, um, but, like, really, the writing has never been the strong point of mainline Pokemon games, like. Right. So, you know, there's only so much to really expect. Um, I will say that the... Actually, fourth gen story was was kind of cool. Um, but putting putting that aside, yeah, I would say that I, I I really legitimately think that it's the best Pokemon game that we've we've had in a little bit. I have thoughts about the Dex cut because I actually really don't mind it, but I do know mm-hmm. a lot of people that do. And really, at this point, the next Pokemon game should just be. And I know they're not going to do this for various reasons, but the next Pokemon game should just not have any previous generation Pokemon. They really That's just shouldn't. That's what I've been thinking about, too. And I yeah. think other people have also had the same like, sentiment of, like, don't don't make a big deal about just, like, choosing certain Pokemon to keep and others to keep right. out. Just have like, all new Pokemon, and then that way, people who are going to gripe about not having old Pokemon 
none of the old Pokemon are going to be in there, so they don't. Right. Exactly. <laughs> Honestly, at this point, I I play the game in a way where I only use new Pokemon in my playthrough anyway, so mm. <laughs> it doesn't doesn't actually affect me at all. And right. I I think that like that to me that's like kind of the fun part about it. Like, I would be fine if no Pokemon returned from the previous games. Now, of course, there are. Like Nintendo, like uh, Game Freak has kind of shot themselves in the foot, and the Pokemon Company has kind of shot themselves in the foot over this because they've made such a big deal out of certain Pokemon being like mascot Pokemon. Like, if you had yes. a Pokemon game without Pikachu, obviously, like yeah. there is something to be said about that, right? Like, that's gonna raise some complaints for sure. Like, kids are gonna be like, "Where's Paul? Where's Pikachu? I want Pikachu in my game." And ultimately, <laughs> yeah. like, I completely understand, and that's probably why they'll, why they'll never have, like, a game that just doesn't have any old Pokemon, because, like, kids want their favorite Pokemon, and their favorite Pokemon are Pikachu and Eevee and Charizard. That's literally it. Like, th- I, I, as, as, as much as that kind of annoys me that, like, Charizard gets the fucking favorite child treatment every generation... Like, ah, uh, whatever. Like, fucking kids will have fun playing their Pokemon game. I will let them have fun. As much as I'm just like, as much as I kind of despise every time they're like, oh, we have a new mechanic in this game. Guess what? Charizard gets one. <laughs> and you're like, ugh. Uh. Like, X and Y came out and, and they're like, we have Mega Evolutions. Charizard has two. Why? Why? Because he's the best. Because he's the best, yeah. Anyway. I uh, I do have one more complaint, which is that um, the implementation of Gigantamax Pokemon, which is different from Dynamax Pokemon. Dynamax is the big Pokemon. Gigantamax is a unique form when they di- Dynamax, and they have a unique move associated with that form. I think it was not implemented in a way that is conducive to the, like... The way that um, it's it's introduced in a way that is conducive to Pokemon as a game about catching Pokemon. It is not con- uh, it is not like consistent with Pokemon as a game about raising your favorite Pokemon. And okay. this is the last thing I will talk about in in regards to Pokemon because uh, otherwise we will be here for another hour, and that thought terrifies me. Sword and Shield has uh, a raid system where, like, you encounter uh, raid Pokemon that are, like, these big Pokemon, and they have, like, um, health barriers where if you reach a certain amount of health, they mm-hmm. conjure up a barrier, and you need to break the barrier before you can whittle down their health some more. Um, right. Which is obviously a way to stop them from just being one-shot by strong Pokemon. Now, Gigantamax is the is the mechanic that they've introduced alongside Dynamax, and Gigantamax is when they have a unique form when they Dynamax, which is when they get big. And mm-hmm. the problem is you can only catch Gigantamax Pokemon from max raid battles. So you cannot get Gigantamax Pokemon unless you catch a Gigantamax Pokemon, even if a Pokemon is the same species as the Pokemon that you catch in, in the wild outside of huh. the raid battles. So... Basically, you get to a point (laughs) where you're like, okay, I've got my favorite Pokemon, my dudes that I've been taking with me on my entire Pokemon journey, my Hatterene, my Santaconda, I got my Scorch, or whatever. (laughs) And then you're like, well, they'll never reach their full potential. I have to throw them away to catch better (laughs) Pokemon. 
which is the g- so Gigantamax version. Right, exactly. Which is so incredibly upsetting to me because it's like so against the idea of like, well, you're supposed to catch and raise your favorite dudes. Why would I do that if I could just catch a stronger one? <laughs> oh my god, dude. They I kind like of a, like an item that you could that's, like. So that's what I was thinking is, and honestly, yeah. I, I, th- I think this should be a thing just for balance. Like, I legitimately think that Gigantamaxing should have been correlated to a held item instead of just a weird internal mechanic that is, like, mm. native to the Pokemon when you catch it. Like, mm-hmm. I mean... Or, like, the Pokemon has to go through some kind of, like, trial, like, Right, whatever, like, you know, there should have been some way to be able to Gigantamax Pokemon that you have raised outside of the system. Yes, Because yes. obviously, like, Max... Okay, so Max Raids also are the way to get um, the best Pokemon. Like, they will have hidden mm-hmm. abilities, they will have uh, maximized uh, internal values, they will have, mm-hmm. um, well, I mean, obviously they'll have Gigantamax, but, like, mm-hmm. um, but like raid battles is essentially um, a way to guarantee good Pokemon. Mm-hmm. And the people who would want to have done that would have done that anyway, right? Mm-hmm. So... It should be for for both balance reasons because it's kind of broken that you can also give your Gigantamax Pokemon a choice scarf or like a choice band and just be like I'm gonna one shot everything on your team, and yeah. like also it just sucks because you're like I was raising this fucking Pokemon from level like two why do I have to replace it with a different one it's, it's I hate like it double it's, the work <laughs> it's really you annoying keep your to me old Pokemon yeah it's and really you also an- have the new one I don't know. It's really annoying to me because it's basically just like, fuck your old Pokemon. They don't give a shit about yeah. them. They're bad. Like, because it's so different from, like, IVs. Because IVs are, like, they only have so much effect on the game because they're mm-hmm. they're all back-end stuff. It's all, like, you know, internalized mechanic stuff. Like, it will be faster. It will be stronger. It will do more damage. But, like, this is such... Like, Gigantamax is such a tangible thing. Like, it's the mechanic upon which the game this one specifically revolves around. Right. Because, like, all the gym leaders have, like, oh, this is my, like, signature Pokemon, so I'm going to Gigantamax it. It's got a special Gigantamax form. And you're like, cool, I want one of those. And you think, like, well, you can just catch one and, like, raise it. No, you cannot. (laughs) So I'm upset about that, and I think that was not implemented in a way that was um, helpful because it's kind of just obnoxious, too. Like, even if it... Even if it was an item or something, it would be obnoxious. But, like, if it was an item, I would not be as, as upset about it because I would be like, okay, I'm going to put this on my whatever and it will evolve right. into whatever. It's not like Mega Evolution where you could just do it. Yeah. Which was great because yeah. you could just pick any Pokemon you wanted to and just be like, Mega Evolution. <laughs> I mean, obviously, it had to have a Mega Evolution form, but, like, you know. Yeah. Y- y- like, you get the idea. Yeah. Now... I I will say like I just think I just think it should have been an item because yeah. also the Pokemon the Gantax Pokemon are really hard to get as well like people have been cheesing mm-hmm. it but like the way that you have to do it is you have to find a den that has a um, Pokemon in it in the wild area and interact with it and the way this works is there's two different beams so there's a ninety percent chance you get a common beam which won't be a Gigantamax Pokemon, basically. And the okay. 10% chance it will be a rare beam, which might be a Gigantamax Pokemon. And they both have tables for encounters. 
And the rare one, so the, and you're keeping track of this, where, like, it, there's a 10% <laughs> chance of getting a rare beam. Okay. Now, within the rare beam, there is a 5% chance of getting the Gigantamax Pokemon. So. Oh, man. <laughs> okay. Not only do you have to catch an entirely different Pokemon, it, you have such an abysmally low chance of getting it, encountering it, yeah. and then you have to fight it and beat it, and then you have to catch it, which is not a guaranteed chance. Wait, so you have to defeat it before you can catch it? Yeah, you have to bring it to zero hit points, and then it will give you the option to catch it, and you just throw a, a ball, and then you, you throw the ball, and it like goes through the like animation, and if you catch it, you catch it. If you don't, you don't. Wait, there's still a failure rate yes. on catching it? So you have to go through like eight steps of like abstraction to even get to this point. Bro. So I, I imagine like after you've defeated it you and you have the ball to catch it, do you only have like a limited number of chances to catch it? Oh, you get one chance. <gasps> what? <laughs> <laughs> like regular catching because regular catching <laughs> you you have that gamble of like okay don't kill it don't kill it don't kill it and then you throw as many pokeballs as you want <laughs> I, okay <laughs> i will i will say in my experience um i have caught the majority of pokemon that i have i've beat like to me it seems like the chance is probably like 70 30 like around there um depending on some factors but like but yes what if you <laughs> it's completely it's completely possible that you can go through the effort of like doing this and then getting the rare table and then getting the 5% chance within the rare table only to, well, fail at catching it once you beat the, the Pokemon. You get the 5% out of the 10% and then you don't catch it. Yeah, so, um, and basically it's just to make sure that Gigantamax Pokemon are rare. Of course, that it's gone completely out the window. There is an exploit that allows you to essentially uh, catch it in the middle of the animation for saving and change the date on your Switch, and it will just update. So people have been using this to cheese, and like they're probably in like 2025 at this point. <laughs> but they've been using it to cheese the system because it just re-rolls every day, so like they can just do that, basically. Right. Um, which is... I, I mean... Honestly, it's, like, too much effort for me to go through. I'll just put in the effort or whatever um, if I have to. I don't... I, I don't know. It's a little obnoxious, but, like, whatever. I, I wish it was implemented a little bit better, but it's not. Um, but what what can you do? It's Game Freak implementing something involving online connectivity, so... <laughs> Yikes. Oh, my God, dude. <laughs> okay, let's stop talking about Pokemon, because this episode is not about Pokemon. <laughs> As much as I wanted it to be about Pokemon. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe one day you'll play it. Okay. Other than that, um, I've been up to... I don't know. I've been working. Um, I've still not been officially hired, which sucks. But whatever. What can you do? Um, I'm putting together plans for that. Don't worry. Um, I stalled... Nano Remo at like nine ninety five hundred words because my life caught up to me and beat the shit out of me. So, um, <laughs> I guess I'll, I'll just I'll just have to continue it into December. I guess. Okay. So you know, there's there's that which kind of blows, but what can you do? Um, life be like that sometimes. Yeah. Uh, 
I <laughs> my friend gave me a, a huge mouse pad, which is kind of nice. Um, and one last thing before we start the episode, I promise. Psy mm-hmm. Games has released. Oh God! Here we go. <laughs> a new gacha game uh... that is a. Currently a Japan exclusive, which is kind of annoying. Uh, it's a gacha pinball game. Yes. It's a pinball RPG. Y'all don't understand, like, when he first brought this up, he's like, oh, they released a pinball RPG, or a pinball game. I was like, oh, okay. And then he actually looked at the trailer for it. He's like, oh, no, it's cute. <laughs> I was like, oh, no. <laughs> it's It's cute, and... And they have the they have the uh, character that I like, Cagliostro K- K- or Cagliostro. <laughs> so now you have to get it. Oh, I did, and I rolled. <laughs> um, and well, I re-rolled a bunch, and I got her. So you know. <laughs> well, I'm happy for you, man. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> One more thing about Pokemon. Piers is the best. Okay. <laughs> He's my favorite character. <laughs> anyway. Let's talk about Parasite! Which is very not Pokemon. <laughs> very much not Pokemon. Super, super different. So you watched this today? 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 Yeah. Oh my god. Today. You're, so you're today, so fresh on this day off of, of it. recording. We're recording on Thanksgiving Day, and I watched it earlier this afternoon. Holy shit. <laughs> okay. Parasite is a 2019 movie directed by Bong Jun Ho, who is known for Snowpiercer, Okja, and The Host, and it is, uh, amongst other things, um, it's about a poor family living in Seoul that supplants all of the all of the like workers in a rich family's home so like the driver the tutor the other tutor and the housekeeper um and they basically just milk them for cash and then shit gets wild here's your disclaimer this is not a spoiler friendly podcast it has never been a spoiler friendly podcast yeah i um my recommendation for this movie is that if you're interested in seeing it then just Go watch it now versus Just listening go to watch this it podcast now. because I, for me, having watched it, I'm really, really, really glad that I knew almost nothing about this movie. Yes. Yep. Because mm-hmm. it's superseded everything that I would have thought would happen. Yes. <laughs> I, okay. I I will I will put this disclaimer out there. Um. So Bong Joon Ho is an uh, is a director who is really well known for movies that have very 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 graphic depictions of violence. So if that is a thing that, you know, you don't want in your movie experience, it's completely okay to skip it. Yeah. All of his movies are really like that. I promise the violence does have a point, but they're very upsetting to watch. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, that's the disclaimer out of the way. That being said, it was a very, very small part of the movie. It's yeah, no. Um, the thing about it is, uh, this movie specifically, it a very small portion of it is is about the violence. Um, yeah. But when it happens, whoo boy, does it happen? Yeah, it happens, and it has an acceptable lead up to it, so that you're not like, well, this is just out of nowhere. I guess someone likes gore or you know violence or whatever. But it's not even that like, like it makes sense in the story, and mm-hmm. then it it's over. Yeah. After, yeah. You know. 
<laughs> you know, that's it. It comes so, like a crashing tide and then it's gone. Yeah. So, um, yes. Uh, if possible, it, this is one of the movies that, like, you should go in knowing as little as possible. I knew actually zero about the movie, except for the yeah. fact that Bong Joon-ho directed it. So I was prepared right. for the violence. So I'm preparing right. you for the violence. Um, right. But yeah, let's talk about Parasite. Well, actually, specifically, let's talk about Bong Joon-ho first. Um, so Bong Joon-ho... Um, who technically, you know, it would be correct to call him Pong Jun Ho, but like Bong Bong uh-huh. Jun Ho. <laughs> it's the American in me. It really wants to take over here. Um, <laughs> but uh, Bong Jun Ho is a really famous Korean director who grew up watching Hollywood movies, so a lot of his style is like really influenced by Hollywood. Um, yeah, and he just makes a bunch of these movies about. Well, they're about different things, but most of the time they're about, like, you know, capitalism is bad and class solidarity is good. The U.S. is bad. The class war is real. So I I recently watched The Host for the first time, which is um, one of the movies he's pretty well known for. It is a movie about a monster that arises from the Han River in South Korea because the... um, uh, basically because Americans dumped a bunch of chemicals into the river and it caused a mutation in a fish that, you know, subsequently led to it rampaging and killing people. Now, hmm. the um, the movie is actually based on a real event. The monster was not real, but the the, the chemical spill was. So mm. um, it's based on a real event where the American military base was just dumping chemicals into the river because, you know, who gives a shit, I guess. Mm hmm. But yeah, a lot of his movies have like these very, very strong sense of like social commentary. Um, they're very, very pointed. There's a lot of violence. Um, or I shouldn't say there's a lot of violence. There is violence in those movies, and it's very, very, very pointed, and it's very, very upsetting to watch. Um, mm-hmm. But it always, always, always has a point, which uh, right. is important to note, because there are a lot of South Korean movies that get... They go cray cray. <laughs> yeah, so there's a lot of Korean movies that get um, exported to the um, to like Western countries that are incredibly violent, but for no yeah. real reason other than the fact that they're being violent. Um, right. And it's an entire discussion to be had about like machismo and uh, hyper violence and how that arises from yeah um, film culture and how it is basically um, a way to export violence um, onto non-white bodies. Like, and this this is a point that uh, I did not come up with originally. Um, somebody I follow on Twitter, um, who is, funnily enough, a uh, person that I follow for Overwatch League translations because um, she translates from Korean to English. But um, she made a really good point about this because... Um, movies don't really get to be like that in the West anymore. Like... There's very few movies that are, like, so gung-ho, like, violent. Like, it, we don't really make Rambo movies. In, okay, I can't say that because a Rambo movie came out recently. <laughs> but I'm going to put a pin in that. I actually really want to come back to that that point. But, like, you know, those kinds of movies which were so commonplace in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, we don't really have as often anymore, you know? Or at least not in the e- same way. Well, yeah, I think the way is a bit different because we still yes. have franchises that take off really well in that vein of like just a lot of violent 
stuff like uh, i mean taken was kind of violent and it was just a string of fights and then taken was, was like Wick. taken what taken came out like at least a decade ago though right yeah well i mean more recently than john wick uh that yeah. series i mean um yeah obviously john wick is is an example of one of these um yeah but i feel like definitely the western movie industry is kind of Shifted started away from moving it. away from it unless it's done really well like in well, john wick they've they've moved away from it because they've moved towards uh cartoon violence like they've they've moved towards comic books basically like really yeah, it yeah, almost yeah. feels like marvel is like <laughs> single-handedly responsible <laughs> for this but like yeah. in a lot of ways like you can track the social trend of um this exportation of hyper masculine violence onto yes. non-white bodies and specifically and this is my point um if you look at movies like Lucy, the Scarlett Johansson movie, where she just becomes hyper intelligent and kills a bunch of Korean Asian bodies for no reason. By the way, all of the all of the triad in in Lucy are Korean for some reason and not Chinese, even though she's Wait, in why? Hong Kong. What? <laughs> I don't get it either. I don't get it either. That movie was a, a huge racist piece of shit. Anyway. Oh, okay. <laughs> it was bad too. It's not a good movie. Um, I didn't watch it, so I don't know. <laughs> oh, good, good for you. <laughs> You're better off. <laughs> but like, there is a trend of of supplanting um, violence on white bodies, uh, as in you know movies like Taken and, and stuff like that. Um, John sure. Wick, obviously, and exporting it to different countries and non white bodies. But that's. A discussion that's technically adjacent to what we're talking about. Um, okay. The violence has a very like pointedness to it in in Bong Joon Ho. It's like a, it's a very like the violence is critique, right? It's violence as critique. Yeah, which is very important because violence for the sake of violence is the rule of beasts. <laughs> like, there's a lot of symbolism in the violence, which was like yeah. I was really surprised by. Yeah, um, I, I would say that the so. the, the movies um, that Bong Joon-ho tends to make are very, very, very symbolic, while at the same time being incredibly literal, which is yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> which is part of the reason that I think they work so well, and part of the reason that I think I like the movies so much is because uh -huh. they're so grounded in reality, while at the same time being the exact metaphor that it needs to be. And like, boy, oh, does the Chekhov's gun just kind of. <laughs> He yeah. just leaves them lying all over the place. Yeah. Anyway, it is. Yeah, I love I love Bong Joon Ho. Um, I'm gonna probably just binge the rest of his movies. I will say this about Parasite. Parasite is such an incredibly upsetting movie that whenever I think about Parasite, I'm like, wow, Parasite was such a fucking good movie. It's so good. It's so good. It's so good. And if I yeah. ever think about rewatching it, I'm like, I'm good. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's <laughs> <laughs> like I, i'm like okay i gotta recommend this movie to people that i know i want to make sure that they watch it like i think it has such like a good message and it has a lot of good commentary and a lot of complex issues i don't really want to watch it again <laughs> yes <laughs> yeah that that is exactly how i feel where i'm just like would i actually want to watch it again is quite debatable yeah like that's not to say that the movie is not entertaining no, I think it should definitely be experienced. 90, uh, I just well, don't... <laughs> I, I will say this, like, 90% of the movie is super entertaining. It's really yes. fun to watch until it's yeah. not. Yeah, exactly. Which is, of course, also part of the point. Um, yeah. But yeah, let's, let's get into it. So, 
the movie starts with this like basically like ratty poor family that lives in like a basement which is like a thing that you know happens in in korea it's like a it's a place that has incredibly stratified wealth disparity um and people who live in these like kind of historic locations like these really old neighborhood locations tend to live in these like like they live in a basement <laughs> like <laughs> yeah well it's a, it's a semi-basement so they it's like half half underground kind of thing right um and they live on yeah they live in the bottom floor of this apartment home or whatever i guess i don't know yeah um, so yeah. um they live there and they don't really make money they try to make ends meet by folding pizza boxes uh they have to basically keep their windows open during a an extermination like um when they like fumigate because they're like <laughs> they're like free fumigation leave the windows open and it's like boy the the fucking symbolism starts so early like first scene you're like oh all right. Yeah, the, I guess. The, the, the very first opening scene was them searching for a Wi-Fi because the Wi-Fi that they were using got like a new password or something like that, so they couldn't use it anymore. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then they receive um a gift from uh one of uh, the uh, the son in the family. Um, his friend gives him a gift, uh, which is a scholar's rock or a susuk, um, which is uh like a Korean sort of Confucian like object of wealth and prosperity it's just it's just, it's one of those things that's just like you we give you rock because it looked nice yeah and because it has you know um actual symbolic meaning but you know <laughs> mm -hmm. um and god i saw a really i i wouldn't i'm not gonna say bad but i am gonna say like bland kind of tired broad generalization article um recently about parasite and about what it perceives um asian cinema to be like and it was it's not good it's not a good article because it basically makes some really broad generalizations about um what like what <laughs> what the author of the article thinks of the asian cinema scene and why it features violence so prominently and why there's so many revenge stories and it was like this whole thing about like confucian influence and like this what? this navigation of confucian ideology it was very bad what and the lady was <laughs> certainly trying her best but she was very white about it it doesn't sound like someone who knows asian culture very well or at least very intimately right because if you know commentary on it if you know anything <laughs> about asian culture and i should say specifically you can't generalize like that like korean cinema is so specific it's really specific like when i <laughs> when the movie was like starting to play out or whatever and like you know i was just i was just sitting there watching i was like man this is such a korean movie <laughs> it's, it's an extremely korean movie yeah like the thing about it is um it fits into an already existing current in korea that has always existed right. mind you that is anti-capitalist it's anti-imperialist it's anti-establishment like this current has always existed. Actually, this current also exists. Um, and there's a very like kind of fun, like almost a funny joke about it in in the host, where uh one of the characters is um somebody who protested um in the 20th century for a Korean democracy, 
and now he can't find a job. So it's like this kind of ironic thing. Um, but like, oh. but like, it's a very real thing where like, you know, Korea South and, and I'd like, I'd like everybody listening to remember this. South Korea has democracy in spite of American influence, not because of. <laughs> but we're America. We spread democracy everywhere, Soupy. <laughs> yeah, Jesus Christ. <laughs> so it is, it is very important to note that these, these currents have always existed in Korean culture and Korean academia and Korean cinema. So like, to make a broad generalization about Confucianism is maybe, maybe one of the more racist things you could do. <laughs> Don't do that. <laughs> I think it's just a little bit ill-informed. Um, I I don't think they intended to be racist. Oh no, no, uh, I don't think anyone yeah. intends. Well, okay, that's not true. People do intend to be racist. <laughs> People do intend to be oh, racist. Oh god, sometimes. what a world! <laughs> but, uh, it sounds a little bit, a little bit ill-informed, a little bit outdated. Because I I I feel like when you start relating Confucianism in that broad of a generalization, you're taking something out of like a world history book or something yeah. like that. The, but, the only know? time I have ever brought Confucianism to um. The only the only times that I've ever brought Confucianism to literary critique are or literary contexts are specifically when we were talking about like ancient Chinese poetry. Yeah, exactly. It's it's old China, right? Right. Ancient <laughs> Chinese poetry, which is we're literally talking about Confucius. <laughs> and specifically the the context of Confucianism as patriarchy, which does come yeah. up a lot in in Asian texts and that is something that you can talk about. But Never like this. <laughs> Let's yeah. just say. Anyway, I'm gonna flush that out of my mind because it made me real, <laughs> real. I, I was, I like legit, just like I was like. <laughs> I felt it. It felt like okay, and this is funny because I, I'm obviously like I didn't. I'm not going to grad school, but like it really felt like reading like a white person, like a white lady's like undergrad paper. About like mm. an Asian piece of media where they're just like Confucianism. That's what they do, right? Yeah. Um. <laughs> so that was whatever. Anyway, so the scholar's rock is a symbol of of like wealth and prosperity. It's you know just one of those things that is it, it exists in in Asia, uh, in Korea, um, from Confucianism, but not strictly like it's not a Confucian story. Stop it. <laughs> So the rock basically grants them the prosperity um, of getting into this situation where they're um, like, you know, this this guy is leaving to go abroad. So he's like, can you tutor the child of this family for me? And so he starts tutoring. And then he learns that the other child in that rich family, the Parks, um, are like needs a tutor. And yeah, so, so the the guy going away, the friend, um, makes a point to say to our our main character, the son, uh, telling him that like, hey, this girl that you're gonna be tutoring, I don't trust anyone else with her because I feel like all these frat boys at my university would just try and make a pass at her, and I actually want to ask her out officially whenever she gets into university. Right. Um, and so the friends like the, our main character, what's his name? Um, uh, Kiwu. Kiwu. It's like, yeah, sure, man, I got you. Thanks for your trust. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
And yeah, he he learns uh, after he gets into the home that there's a much younger son as well because they have two children. Um, who the mom is saying like, oh, he's like an artistic genius or whatever. Um, and uh, she was thinking about getting him an art tutor. And so then Kiwu has an older sister who has been trying to get into an art school. And so he's like, <laughs> he tries to bring her into the household too. And then they get the dad in by firing the driver. And then they decide why not try and get the whole family in. <laughs> and then the whole family becomes just... A- like they they just supplant all the workers and suddenly they're making a bunch of money off of these like really naive rich folk. Yeah. And so you have your first like ah I get it parasite thing. Your first right. moment where you're like ah parasite yes. <laughs> it must be referring to these people <laughs> because yes. uh yeah they they the son ends up being able to be a replacement tutor despite not being. A university student because his sister uh, helps him forge like the documents necessary to kind of give him the appearance of having like attending university mm-hmm. um and the the friend who had given kiwu this job was also like just just fake it it's fine <laughs> just fake it and you'll be able to get this cushy job whatever you know um and then uh it's also kind of implied that the mom, the that Kiwu's parents, uh, at some point, I guess, became both unemployed mm-hmm. during that discussion when he's talking to his friend. It's like, oh, yeah. they're just they're just having a hard time finding a job right now, kind of thing. Right, they're all unemployed. Yeah, but you get the sense that they've been like this for a while, um, and Kiwu himself has been having a really hard time getting into university. Like he failed the exam four times, and so. He has a sweet moment with his dad where he's saying, like, as he's leaving for this job, that uh, he just printed out his acceptance papers for the university early that he's still planning on going. Um, But yeah, anyway, he (laughs) they end up getting the dad into the household by getting the current driver of the family fired um, Mm -hmm. by the sister. (laughs) <laughs> uh planting her own underwear into the the driver's car and kind of making it seem like the driver was a skeezy guy using the the car for other means. And then the uh get the mom into the household by replacing the housekeeper by kind of also uh deceiving the family into thinking that she had tuberculosis. Um so it's a lot of like trickery and deception into getting this family into this other family's life. And so that's why you kind of think that they're the parasites from the Mm get-go. Despite the fact that you're kind of rooting for them because you don't want them to live in those terrible conditions. Right. But then they start doing worse and worse stuff, and you're like, oh, no. (laughs) Well, okay. I I think the the best part about the, like, the great thing about the progression of this movie is yeah. that it's such a roller coaster all the way through because you don't really know what to expect, um, especially if yes. you don't know anything about the movie, which is like yes. the best place to be. Because yeah. when I was watching the movie the first time, um, like he get, he gets to the like house and is just like, um, you know, doing the tutoring stuff and he's like um, doing doing this whole thing, and I was like. I'm really uncomfortable because I feel like the punchline to this is going to be like he has sex with both of them. Oh, I no, I, I, I had a feeling I was like, I bet you the girl is going to fall in love with him and he's going to have a moral debate on whether he should 
get with her, this rich daughter, or be loyal to his friend. But he just moves right in on her. No, he and just I was goes, like, Wah. no! <laughs> this boy is morally bankrupt right now. He just did his friend dirty. But I mean, you okay. also... I don't, it's it's because I, there's so many like there's so many moments that are like like really long lingering shots on like hand holding or like eye contact. Yeah, it's really uncomfortable. It's, it, it's uncomfortable, but also it's like is he seducing her like on purpose or isn't he? And it just kind of happens because she just she ends up making a move on him, and he's like, okay, well this is permission. I'm just gonna go in and forget about my friend. But it was also like it's so interesting because this movie obviously none of these characters are like like morally like completely evil or completely good or whatever they right. they have they all have really nice redeeming qualities and they also have like oh no they just did this terrible thing but the end their intentions are obviously like they want to be able to take care of their family they want to take care of each other and so you kind of at least for me as i was watching this movie i was like where would i draw the line between doing what's necessary to help my family to or like trying to stay true to my ideals and my morals right, right. <laughs> well this is this is one of the best things about um like bong Jun ho movies which is that it, he does not valorize the poor for being poor they're not morally right, exactly. righteous because they're poor like right. they're basically just as much like complicated messy people as the rest of us they just have more things to worry about so like yeah yes it's clear that their entire, like, you know, M.O. is to take care of their family, first and foremost. You know, they're talking about, like, well, like, we should just move out of this house that is yeah. just kind of shit um, amongst all that other stuff. But at the same time, they obviously do all of these really messed up things. And that's important because it makes them so complicated and so nuanced in, in a way that is so often not the case in in stories like this. Like, the reason it, it feels like such a grounded story while also feeling like this kind of, like, I want to say almost whimsical for, mo for the most part, like, almost whimsical metaphorical story, you know, this, like, allegory, it's, like, <laughs> and, and, and you're like, oh, like, I'm rooting for these people, but they're also kind of dickheads sometimes. Yeah, like, you want good things for them, but at the same time, you're like, they're really doing some terrible things here. Like, they're ruining other people's lives for their own sakes. Right. But, and, and I love the discussion that they have, like, like I, I think it was probably one of their last moments as a family before stuff really goes down, um... Is is that that moment when they're in the living room and they're eating and they're like <laughs> they they've raided the the rich family's <laughs> yeah, home yeah. while the rich family is out on a camping trip <laughs> and and they're really enjoying themselves and and kind of like fantasizing what it would be like if they had owned a home like this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But the sister, oh no, the the, the father, uh, he's saying like, oh that driver, the old one, like. He's he's young, right? He he probably definitely has a job by now, right? And then the rest of the family's like, yeah, yeah, you know, like he's got he's young, he's got a good physique, like I'm sure he's fine. But you, it's obvious that the dad feels guilty about mm -hmm. ruining someone else's, you know, life or job prospects for this, and um. And then the sister kind of argues with him, like, why are you thinking about this? Like, we have to just look out for our own. Like, look at the kind of situation we're in. We don't have time to worry about other people. 
right. we have to think about ourselves. And that's that's such a real debate, especially when you're living that impoverished of a life. Is like you're struggling so hard day to day just to make ends meet. And like you have all of these problems. Like how much can you think about other people outside of your own situation? But at the same time, it's like how much are you how far are you willing to go to ruin someone else's life just so that you can have something a little bit better than the situation you're in now or in, mm-hmm. their, in their case a lot better right mm-hmm. yeah 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 I, I mean i i would say that like in many ways i i like this so much just because it's um it refuses to make things like really clear cut but at the same time it's so clear and direct about what it's saying like the movie has a definite stance that it is taking but at the same time you know you can you can tell that they're not like perfect it's like they're not you're not rooting for them they're not good by virtue of being poor they're just trying to take care of themselves which is to be fair the central like um theme that runs through a lot of of Bong Joon-ho's movies which is that like you know the world is is cruel and harsh and you have to rely on your family but also your family's a fucking mess (laughs) like there's so much going wrong within your family that how can you possibly take refuge in the only people you know you can trust yeah so yeah there is there is a a lot to be said um about that um i will say i love the fact that like (laughs) the so the movie which is like I would say for probably about 70%, like 60 to 70% is it's actually like funny. It's like really funny. Yes. I I I loved how humorous it was and it kind of reminded me because of like how dark it gets later. It kind of reminded me of um The Wailing. Oh, okay. Um that 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 Korean horror movie hmm. where a lot of scenes in it are super funny and you're like what what's happening and then it becomes like it becomes like a legitimately scary movie like i don't want to rewatch that movie also mm-hmm. despite the fact that it was a good movie because it was scary <laughs> yeah well <laughs> but it was actually funny i don't know <laughs> that's like that's the thing that's really good about um yeah. this movie specifically is that the <laughs> like it is so masterfully crafted to build yeah. tension at the right yeah. moments because yeah. even when it's being hysterical even when it's really funny you are still so tensed yes because like they go from a funny scene to like descending into the basement of the home and i'm like immediately just like oh no (laughs) right but even even in the like lighter hearted part of the movie like the the first half of the movie it's still really tense sometimes because you're yeah you're like it's like watching a heist movie because yes it is (laughs) because they're just trying to do this this sort of really kind of not like not like great idea but also one that will make them a lot of money very fast yeah and you're like ah because there's so many moments where you're like is this gonna work is this gonna work are they gonna be found out like yeah. that entire sequence where they're getting the the housekeeper fired is just so good. There's just like shave a peach. Oh god, dust, yeah, dust no, that was peach. definitely a whole like the heist situation yeah. kind of. <laughs> the first the first half of Parasite is extremely a heist movie. Oh man. Actually, it is a heist movie until about 95% of the way through. I would say. Yeah. Uh, 90%. 90 percent and then the the last 10 percent is yeah well because then they have to escape the house 
Yeah. Like as soon as they get home after that, like that's when the heist part of yeah, the movie that, ends. Yes, that's the yes, exactly. That's the turning point. Yeah. Yeah. I, I will I will say this about the movie um and the direction is that it's very strong. And I noticed this when I watched the host as well. Like, there's a lot of shots in the host that are incredibly like symbolically charged. Like the visual storytelling is really, really good. And yes. It's really impressive because it's not complicated either. Like yeah, the direction is so clear. It's a lot of yeah. like these like moving shots, like up or down, like verticality right. that signal right. movement from like um, affluence to poverty or poverty to affluence. And at the yeah. same time, there's a lot of like parallel shots that just hold two points together. Like when um, when the scene of them running down in the rain is happening, they're descending. You know, they're descending yep. from yep. affluence into poverty, and then. Yep. They have a bunch of those shots where like the dad is like um like you know uh or where like the um the housekeeper that is like keeping the or her husband in the basement is like throwing up into the toilet and then it literally immediately switches to their toilet and like water is like splashing up from it. Like mm-hmm. the visual parallelisms in this movie are both incredibly striking, very clear, and very strong. Yeah, like if I were to rewatch this movie. <laughs> and <laughs> I don't know if I were to somehow make myself rewatch this movie, it would be to study the cinematography because it is spot on. It's a gorgeous movie. Every shot, every frame felt very purposeful and and really well composed. Mm-hmm. I was like from from the beginning, I was really impressed, and uh, I I think they did an amazing job. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, it's also really important to consider the fact that they made the house for the movie. Um, and a lot of that, the reason that the house exists um, is is as symbolism. And this is the case with a lot of, of Bong Joon-ho's works uh, where the architecture is also pretty important. Like the architecture and the environment are very important to the story being told. Um, mm. the fact that the, the Kims live in this like really cramped, like s- almost subterranean, but slightly poking out, um, mm-hmm. place, um, where the housekeeper's husband lives in complete darkness underground and the parks mm-hmm. live in this like, um, amazingly like wide spacious, um, place that has, mm-hmm. uh, this like huge glass window pointing out into their yard and beyond, yeah. Which um, and, oh my god the parallel to like their own home their semi basement home right exactly with the window pointing out onto the street like the half window oh my god dude yeah it's <laughs> it's really really good like you have this this sliding gradient of yeah. how much you can see out into the world and yeah. the window um, in the park house is actually really important too because it's um, it was designed with the intent to be uh, like a home theater. So they're like, it's like, mm. basically, you're able to view out into the world um, as and like, it's a theater. So as entertainment and not as anything else, whereas, you know, like nobody sees the 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 Kim house like because the, there's those drunk people that just come out and pee on the house or whatever because yeah. they don't they don't fucking see the house. And then there's the yeah. guy that lives in the basement where nobody even knows he exists. Right. Yeah. So it's like. This this gradient of like status is so stratified both visually and symbolically that it's like so oh it's so strong it's so oh, good. I love even like the parts of uh when they're just just entering their homes or just approaching their homes because it's it's like you said where 
the the parallel shots of them whenever they go down towards their home they're like crossing this they're they're going through this bridge they're going down 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 these stairs and then right, eventually right. they get down to the lower neighborhoods and they go even further down the street to their home when they're going to the basement the bunker uh where the guy is it's in this claustrophobic little hallway that just kind of like winds all the way down it's all stone stairs all the way down and then when you're entering the kim's home you're on a staircase that goes up into the home and so it's so interesting (laughs) Uh, yeah yeah um uh, i will also say the uh the movie does a great job of showing the uh, the conditions of poverty and what that really means. Because it's one thing to have a, a family that's like, you know, ostensibly poor. They probably don't have a lot to eat. They they don't, um, you know, they live in kind of a, a not great like house. They probably have like not good central heating. Like I'm imagining Charlie in the Chocolate Factory right now. Like everybody just there's like eight people living in the house. Fucking Grandpa Joe or whatever his name is is like I can't move. And then he's like I got the ticket. And he's like woohoo, <laughs> yahoo. Um, but like what the what like this movie gets really right and what Bung Joon Ho really understands is that poverty is not a reflection of uh your like material like possessions it's a status like it is a lingering condition because even yeah. though they're in like the kims are in the park family house and they're like dressed like nicely um there's a very pointed thing that they they talk about, which is what they smell like. You know, they smell like the same, yes. like kind of musty, like damp smell, which Semi-basement is basement, which smell. is to say, the smell of poverty. Like it, it is yeah. like it's a very like powerful way of of like talking about how you know you can make money and poverty will still not leave you, and right. and the fact that they that the parks don't understand what it is, but they disdain it anyway. Like that's such a like rich people thing to do where like, I don't know what it's like to be poor, but I don't like the poor anyway. Right. It's like, yeah. And, and that's kind of where you get the sense of like, cause you don't actually know what any of these fucking people do um, that live in the rich house. You, you know that like the dad does some like international trading or whatever. Um, I thought he was part of a tech company. He's yeah, he's like some, it's like some some something like globalized, like something global, which is like a really important thing to note. But like they make a ton of money and they have a really nice house that they bought off of an architect that died and they're blissfully unaware of everything that happens around them, which is the point. Like they in a sense are also the parasites. Yeah, they like get they, to they live have the really easy of lives, not having to think about yeah the people around them, and and it's like this this relationship isn't just one sided either, where like you know it's like oh rich people bad, poor people good, right? Because like you know like I said, Bong Joon Ho doesn't valorize the poor like that. What he says is like uh, one of the characters notes they're they're nice because they're rich. Right. They're yes. allowed to be nice because they have the means to be nice. They obviously don't understand. They're completely naive about everything that happens around them. They're they're completely oblivious, but they they are ostensibly quite decent to the people around them for the most part. So, yeah, 
they are nice because they are are rich. But at the same time, they don't really get it. Yeah. And then you have the basement. Golly, the basement. Golly, the basement. There's just so much to talk about with the basement. <laughs> there was so much. Like, that's when the movie, like, I was like, this movie is going so far beyond anything I would have expected <laughs> was yes. the introduction of the basement there there is a there is a twist like 70 percent of the way through the movie where it turns out like turns out that the old housekeeper's husband has been living in the basement that was built for bomb shelter reasons basically uh because he's avoiding tax collectors so this is the absolute fucking lowest that you can get in in the in the visual language of the movie and Essentially, he just is also a parasite. He fucking lives in the house. And Bro, like, it, it, the imagery of, like, when she first, like, brings them down there and then, and then, like, at first I thought that he was, like, her son or something because she gave him a baby bottle. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, she gave him a baby bottle and a banana because he had been starving without mm-hmm. her working there anymore. And so she was desperate to get into the household so that she could feed this person in the basement. But it turns out that he's her husband and he's in massive debt. And so he can't leave because the loan collectors will come after him mm-hmm. and, and they're loan sharks, essentially. And so he just lives in this basement because he has nowhere else to go. And he was taken care of by the housekeeper, his wife. And also being able to sneak out during the night and, and like and steal food and stuff from God, the rich people. That entire sequence where she knocks while they're like having a party is so fucking stressful. Like because she she's just like really ragged and she's just like, please, you have to let me go die. I forgot something. And then like, uh, okay. I know. No, like I was and just I like, was legit, oh my god, I was don't le- let her in. <laughs> I was legit waiting for her to kill somebody, and then it didn't happen oh and it got god. weirder. It got bizarre. I was like, y'all know that she could compromise everything and you're letting her in the house. But you could tell that the mom felt guilty. Yeah, like, like felt bad. Because she replaced her. Yeah, because she intentionally threw this woman basically out on the street and she looks rough. Like she looks beaten up. And so the mom's like, okay, I'll let you in like real quick or something. And then holy cannoli <laughs> i legit thought she was gonna go down in the basement uh and uh, like and just be like oh yes i forgot something in the basement what was in the basement a gun right like a weapon or something and just goes yeah. after them oh uh, god that didn't happen it got way wilder what the yeah. fuck yeah okay so i would like to talk about about the basement because the basement is such an important important part of the entire fucking central theme of the movie yeah because it is a a remnant of the war it is a remnant of the korean war um which is to say the ongoing korean war the never-ending korean war um Mm. but it is it was basically built because of anxieties about um the uh you know north korea um and and like you know wartime that would that would potentially happen because like that's a thing people have been worrying about for 50 fucking years so mm-hmm. not only that um it is it was built by an architect and it was built with that that basement so that's kind of an important detail like the architect clearly had money because this house is really fucking nice and the fact that it is built on top of 
uh, of a symbol of of wartime is really important because it means that the people that live there, the people that live in poverty, the house is literally built on top of of poverty. Like it's built on top of people that can't even begin to go outside to fix their conditions. Like he's fucking stuck in there because if he goes outside, he'll be killed. Mm-hmm. And it's it's important because. The the parks have like just no idea what their house is built on. They have no idea who their house is built on. They have no idea about any of this stuff because they just work in like like the dad just works in like global tech. He's he's like a part of the the global market. He has a fucking nuclear family with three dogs. Like it is the the symbol of like of what a what a like globalized um world looks like a neoliberal globalized world where like yes this man makes a lot of money and he provides for his family and they ha- they're having a good time but also it's literally built on top of a wartime bunker that has a person living in it who has been living in it for the past couple years so you know that's like not super subtle really <laughs> Like, that's pretty clear cut about what what the movie is trying to tell you about about wealth. Like, wealth is built on top of wartime and it's built on top of poverty. Yeah. So. Yep. That's very important. I love the scene when the um, the fucking families start to fight. Bro. <laughs> because it's so wild. And also, it's it's like this very pointed like statement about how as long as the threat of rich people exists, poor people will turn against each other because they have to, to survive, right? Like, uh. they scramble over this phone and whoever has it, because, you know, they said like, uh, they said, oh yeah, because the son says like, oh dad, right? And um, that's yeah. incriminating evidence, right? And so... Whoever has this holds the power to rat them out to the other family, um, to, to the Park family. And they're just shitheads to each other about it. Like, they're like, they're completely, like, they're, they're fighting over it. They're, they're squabbling over it. And then when the, um, when the housekeeper and her husband get a hold of it, they make them just, like, hold position, basically. Um, it's yeah, a- well, he, he also, like, I think very pointedly says that it's like holding a nuclear warhead yes. in, in your mm-hmm. hands. That, like a button to one. That is and by I far, just... I think, my favorite line in the entire movie because it's like <laughs> such a like sardonic, pointed statement about like the relationship between North and South Korea in in the current global like space, where they're not actually North Koreans, which is what I thought the the twist would be. Um, <laughs> because God knows the the movie had already been twisting me here and there by that point, but. But the the fact that they pretend to be as a joke is is telling about about certain things because um it is a joke it is also completely serious in a meta context because it's like yes the wealth of South Korea is literally built upon the poverty of North Korea the fact that they mm-hmm. South and North Korea are constantly at war is not an accident it is a a result of U S occupation in South Korea. The threat of North Korea has to exist for the U.S. to justify their presence in South Korea. Mm. And here we will return to the important thing that I said at the beginning of this podcast or at the beginning of this uh, segment about, you know, the actual thing and not the bullshit where we talk about Pokemon for like an hour is democracy (laughs) in South Korea exists 
in spite of U.S. influence, not because of, right? Mm -hmm. There was a very, like, long stretch of time where the U.S., um, and this, this is, to be fair, a pointed statement about, like, you know, like, it's the still that today, where the the South Korea does not have sovereignty because it doesn't have control over its own military. Its military is controlled by America and the U.S. military. Um, and God knows that that's, like, a whole other thing, which luckily is covered in The Host by Bong Joon-ho. But, like, the fact that, the fact that it's, like, um, not only is it, like... Okay, wealth is built on top of poverty. It's also specifically the wealth of of South Korea is built on top of the wealth of North Korea. And they have to keep squabbling because they can't get it together basically. They can't like join forces to to turn against the rich people because of the overwhelming pressure of those rich people existing. They have so much more power and they can't even imagine what it would be like to oppose that power. So they just have to threaten each other with it. They just have to threaten each other to get ahead because there's no other way for them to survive. Just like, Oh my God, it's so good. This movie is so fucking good. Like it's, it's like, metaphorical man it's like really man, metaphorical it's so deep man it's so deep it's like a monkey right no a person okay <laughs> yeah um there's actually there's actually a couple of references to to north korea one of them is um when the dad um who's played by um song kang ho who is one of the most famous korean actors but he's in like everything bong jin ho has ever directed which is i think hilarious mm-hmm. um what but like what's um like he says Specifically, when he's driving um, for the first time, he says, I know everything below the 30th parallel. Yeah, the, the 30th parallel being the imaginary line that America drew in the war to be like, OK, if North Korea crosses this, it's war. Yeah. Now they did because nobody else knew that line existed because guess what? That's how imperialism works. <laughs> so it's like, yeah, you, you see that. Everyone in this movie is pretty much justified in what they're doing. They're also just completely awful to each other all the time. Like, <laughs> Jesus Christ. It's a lot, man. <laughs> the end of the movie is such a natural conclusion to everything else that happens. Like, all of the lead up is such a perfect... Yeah. It's such a perfect, like, like um, build up to what happens at the end when everything just kind of explodes. Where... Yeah. You have people dying, obviously, like the um, uh, what's it called? Uh, the, the guy who lives in the basement, you know, kills the daughter, um, which is awful. Yeah, that that scene made me very upset. Um, and yeah. then you have the <laughs> the mom kill uh, the guy who lives in the she basement. She skewered him. She skewered him real hard, too. Oh, I was my like, holy God. crap. And then you have um. And then you have uh, the the father kill the dad, just yeah. fucking stab him, and yep. it's such a like perfect like point in that movie that just like peaks all like where the entire that's like it is the it is the um it's the singularity point that's what that's the word I was looking for it is the singularity point um of of the movie where everything just kind of comes together like you know you have um. He's sick of hearing about how he smells like poverty and he 
has like the 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 dad of the rich family has demonstrated that he does not give a shit about the anybody that works for him because he's because like obviously like you know it is important because his son is having a seizure and he's like we, we need to drive to the hospital like right now um but he's also like completely ignoring the fact that the other person like the daughter of of the like the kim daughter is bleeding out onto the floor she's dying yeah, but he 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 also he he doesn't know that she is related to right exactly you know his driver but he also like it it is like the tutor of his son and i guess everything is going so crazy that he's also in that mindset of like i got to get mine i got to like get my family out of here forget everyone right. else kind of thing and so it just comes to a head when the when the mr park the the rich guy the rich dad is turning over the body exactly of of the dead murderer and he gets assaulted by whatever this guy smells like because he's been in a basement for forever for four years and that's when the dad finally snaps Mm -hmm. and i love the moment that later on um the dad actually feels really regretful about yeah having killed him like he he just like had a moment of like all of this tension just finally welled up and snapped inside of him but he felt so sorry and he wished that it didn't happen right it it is that it is that moment of of like where he has done something that he is reasonably like un- it is reasonably understandable why he did it um but he knows that what he did was kill another person and that yeah. that is just kind of the line that you're not really supposed to cross. And yeah, the fact that he goes back into the basement, that he has to become like this, he has to become the the new like husband of the housekeeper where like he has to live in the basement and steal food. And like nobody even knows he exists anymore. Like a new family moves in or whatever. Yeah. Right? Like he, he takes the, that, the guy that he killed or no, not the guy that he killed, but you know, yeah, he takes he takes the, he takes his place. He takes his place. Yeah, the guy that killed his daughter, you know, <laughs> and and almost killed his son, he has to take his place now. Right, and it's and, crazy. And I will say this is this is kind of a funny thing when I was watching the movie where I thought the movie would end like three different times and it just kept going. Right, me too. I was like, oh, it's not over. Oh, <laughs> yeah, it kept. Go- Oh my god! And then when uh, the son is like talking about like his plans for the future yes, and how yeah. he's gonna buy the house or whatever, I was like, "Oh, is this how the movie ends? It has a happy ending." And then you're and you show, like, like, "Oh!" And then, and then you show the last scene. <laughs> it's the last scene. Like, still thinking about it, just gives me chills. Like, me too. It, oh my god! Dude. It's such a because like there there is that moment when you think, okay, he's gonna wander off, and the mo- like the dad is gonna wander off, and the movie will be over. And then it's not. And then you're, you're thinking, yeah. OK, is it this happy scene where like the movie's going to be over? Where like, you know, he's like, yeah. you're like, wow, because like there is that that's like amazing, 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 like super gorgeous shot where he walks out of the basement and yes. into the sunlight. And he just like, yes, that that scene is so good. Yes. And like so and like burned into my brain. Yeah. And then. Cause like he's like I'll become rich and I'll I'll get this house for you and and you'll be able to walk in the sunlight again, and then right. it cuts back to him, just like writing the letter and you're like, oh, 
oh it hasn't oh. happened because you, you think during that scene you're like wow he actually did it he somehow managed to like save up the money and his mom is there and he like this he somehow managed to afford this ridiculously expensive house and they got everything moved in and his his dad and him are hugging and he was finally able to like because during the movie him and his dad have a moment where uh kiwu apologizes to him and he's like i don't just for everything i'm sorry for everything and he feels a responsibility to save this family because it, it they're in such a terrible situation and the dad's like no like this is this is my responsibility essentially because he's the head of the household and so he took all of the responsibility when he uh killed mr park and decided to go live in the basement and so the son wants to save him and save the rest of their family that's left mm -hmm. and so you still have this hope that oh everything's gonna work out for them like all their suffering wasn't for it for nothing and then the coldest oh bringing back down to reality moment is just that well, scene right after the, th the thing about it too is like even even the like visual language of it is incredibly powerful because you have this moment where like the sun is shining in through the window and he's like walking out into this almost blinding like space yeah and then yeah. you cut back and it's still winter yeah oh my god and the sun also looked just like his friend like his the way that his hair was styled the way that he was his, his he was dressed exactly like his friend i was like that's super important because he during the movie was also like i wonder what my friend would do in this situation mm -hmm. because i think at least in my mind his friend kind of like represents everything that he wants to be he's a successful yeah, university right. student he's studying abroad he's got his life together and so that's why he's trying to think of like what his friend would do in these situations because he wouldn't mess up this badly yeah oh my god <laughs> And then you just like the thing about it is it's like there is it feels so, like I legit at, at, at that realization. And when the movie cut, I was I was like ready to cry. I was like, oh, my God, yeah. like the yeah. entire sequence where he's like walking out into the like uh, lawn. I was like about to cry yeah. because it's yeah. it is. Like the allegory, like the metaphor for a son, like a child trying to lift their parents out of poverty yep. and it's yep. like ow that hurts me like a lot yeah, no i i almost cried during the just the talk between the son and the dad when they're in the gym you know mm -hmm. just like the when the son was apologizing i was like ah. <laughs> yeah like i feel this so much and then you you come to the like cold heavy realization that that fantasy isn't real and you have a lingering sense that it will not happen that it yes, will not exactly. be real like yeah you have this warm warm dream and you're brought back to the the crushing reality of there's no possible way that you right. could you could get there which is yeah which is poverty that's poverty yeah exactly it's the inescapability of poverty <laughs> like it is the crushing weight of what poverty does to you and what what it does to your family. And it's so different from like movies that are like, we might be poor, but we have each other because it's like, right. it it's so honest about like yeah. when you're poor, your family who are the only people that you can trust when you are poor is a mess because of yeah. everything that happens to you when you're poor. Yeah. Like, yeah, it is. It is so important to me that, 
not only is not only is the um or the characters themselves kind of like morally nuanced it's the fact that the situations they're in are also nuanced but also very clear about like how kind of shitty it is to be poor and uh, why like more importantly why like it's not just oh i don't get to like eat or whatever i don't get to eat good food it's like there is a lingering sense of inescapability of my like situation of there's not a future that exists for me except for one that i have to imagine like oh it hurts like right here no it's a it it permeates literally everything and (laughs) oh it's it's interesting because i actually was recently reading this um uh it was basically like this comment by someone who was saying, like, the reason that they love stuff like uh, Superman and uh, kung fu movies and, like, why these, like, superhero genres and also these martial arts genres uh, actually permeate a lot in the black community, because it was a black Mm -hmm. person who was posting this. Um, uh, He was saying that it's because by basically, you know... I having these people that, that are idealized and they are constantly kind to other people and they try to find these uh idealized solutions to these problems and they never stop trying to be kind. It's like a mm-hmm. way of yeah. showing how you can be better than the situation that you're in that that despite how much like poverty that you're in, how much how bad your neighborhood is, how much crime is rampant there, there's still a way for you to try and be a good person and try to mm-hmm. be kind. And I was like, that's, oh, that's it. That's it right there. <laughs> right. I mean, that's, it's, I admit that I have a lot of love for shows uh, and, and media that are, are about being kind and about not giving up because of, because of that. Um, yeah. Obviously not every piece of media can or should be like that because. It, right. Exactly. <laughs> it is absolutely vital to me that uh, things like Parasite exist. Um, yes. And really anything that, that Bong Juno's ever directed because they're all like, oh God, they're all so fucking sad. Like, yeah, because sad things happen in them and they really, really affect you in, in ways that are incredibly upsetting because you feel so hard because there is a kind of incredibly sincere, like honest conversation that is, that is occurring when you watch these movies where it's not like. While it is a a symbolic metaphoric story, it's also so literal and so grounded, and the characters feel so realistic that it's it 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 like anything that happens to them you feel and yeah it feels like the movie is is being like true to itself and to you yeah. like it's it's speaking yeah. the truth to you in a way that like I think. It's so hard to find, I think, in in a lot of like movies where, you know, obviously like, well, okay, like like superhero movies, like I like to watch the cool dudes do the punching because, you know, uh, I feel empowered when I see that like one person can have so much power and still be kind and still affect change. And at the same time, like. There's so much heartfelt sincerity to to Bong Joon-ho's movies because they're like. This situation sucks. Like these people kind of suck, but like also they're just doing their best. And yeah, the th- everyone is trying to do their best. <laughs> exactly. And nothing that happens in these movies, like 
can be changed. Like the right. every action that happens feels so permanent and has such like direct, powerful consequences that it it's such a visceral experience to watch, you know, any of them. Um the host was really, really good actually, um, for multiple reasons. <laughs> Uh, but like you know, the fact that the the dysfunctional family is at the the center of it is yeah is one of the reasons it's it's so good. Like they just squabble all the time, but they <laughs> still come together to try to to do the right thing, and they they still like. Oh God, I could talk about that movie for a, a long time too. Um, but like I I think what's great too is like it's also like the the movies are funny like like even. <laughs> Even though they're like really serious, really powerful, moving films, they're still like funny because sometimes even when things are really sad and stressful, it something's just kind of funny. Like there's that entire sequence um, after the the party scene where the son wakes up in the hospital and he just can't stop laughing, and that's that's the yeah. kind of part of it. It's like it's funny in a way. Yeah, but not, I mean, it's, you know, yeah, <laughs> no, no, I, I, and I completely agree is that, I mean, first of all, as a storytelling element, like juxtaposing tragedy with humor is, mm -hmm. is classic. I mean, it's, it's Shakespearean even like, right. you know, it's, and, and, but also when you're in such a terrible situation, sometimes the only thing you can do to cope is to laugh. And that's why comedy is so important. I mean, any comedian would tell you the same is mm -hmm. they'll they'll tell you an entire routine based off of this terrible tragic event but yeah sometimes that's what you need and that's why i like i have a really hard time with people these certain internet people you know who will take everything so seriously and be like you can't laugh at this you can't laugh at that but how else will you cope it's like when uh like if you're in a uh, an ER and you have a surgeon who's cracking jokes while this person on the table is like in a really serious situation the people in those situations who work to save people's lives they need they need this mm -hmm. you know and and i feel like people in general need humor in order to be able to cope with with near everything um obviously it's not something that you have like all the time you know not everything can be funny mm -hmm. but i think it's a tried and true method of of getting through some really messed up situations <laughs> yeah there's there's a scene where uh in the host where they're running um and the dad character like like you know falls over grabs like his daughter's hand and runs and then he mm -hmm. looks and it's the wrong person he's grabbed the wrong oh, person's no. daughter so, like, it's moments like these where it's something that's kind of actually funny in yeah. the middle of something horrifying. Yeah. And part of that is, like, what makes it feel so grounded and so realistic and so, like, honest, where sometimes something is just, it's just funny. As, as horrible as everything else is, you're like, ha, 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 ha. Yeah, <laughs> I keep thinking of the 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 scene the scene in the wailing where they, uh, it's it's like the funeral of one of the victims and it's it's very tragic and, uh, the however the funeral goers are like so 
overly dramatic that it becomes like a really humorous scene to the point that they actually start fighting each other (laughs) (laughs) and this ridiculous fight breaks out and the the main police investigator he's the main character is like the straight man to like everyone else's ridiculousness and he's also like a really cowardly dude and so his reactions to are priceless when a lot of crazy stuff goes down (laughs) Mm -hmm. but it also like when the horror happens it's all the more scary because not everything is like weighted down or whatever in the same mood and it never changes it's like it becomes really light and then it becomes really heavy and and i think that dynamic is so important in these kinds of movies that's uh that's how you do black comedy well it's uh it's not it's not making really really edgy jokes that punch down it's shit like this where you're like Oh, okay, that's horrifying, but <laughs> there needs to be a balance, or else needs to be you a balance. won't you you won't feel the impact of like the really harsh yeah. moments nearly I, as well. Well, I I think that's what that's what um Bong Joon Ho does really well. Like moment, like the thing is, um, a lot of horror movies have comedic elements in them to um basically like release the tension. Um, yeah, and. It's kind of the opposite in Bong Joon-ho movies where it's like all of the comedy is to build attention and you can feel the point, the tangible, like visceral point at which that will explode. And you feel it all the way through. It's like so strong because you're watching and you're like, (laughs) the whole way through and something finally happens. Like anytime something really stressful happens, you're like, ah, and then you go. (laughs) Okay, all right. I feel a lot better, actually. That's weird. <laughs> like, it's horrifying, but it also is, like, reverse... Com- it's, like, reverse horror movie where, like, the comedy builds up to this, like, boiling point and then the stressful thing happens and suddenly you're, you're like, relieved a little bit that something has finally happened. You're like... Whoa. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I, I think the, the, the pacing, like, the, the flow of the movie is so, so, so strong... Because it twists yeah. very strongly, but not in ways that are meant to just twist you. They're meant to just, like, jar you. Like, it's not like, oh, there's no reason that this should happen. Everything is so, like, crafted to make a yes. point about something. Yes. Like, every shift in the narrative has a reason for being there. Oh, yeah. Like, every every time that I felt like this movie is getting so freaking wild. I, like, my mind would kind of like, yeah, yeah. It would kind of like analyze backward and be like, could this have been prevented given the characters and the circumstances? And the answer was consistently no. No. Because like, you just think about like everything that leads up to it and you're like, but this character would do this. This character would do that. And you're like, this, this just end up happening just by, by virtue of the situation that they're in and the kind of people that they are. And, <laughs> yep. Oh man. <laughs> yeah. It's funny. I saw a uh, I saw an interview with with Bong Joon Ho, uh, or at least a, a little excerpt of an interview where he was like, um, somebody was just like uh, asking about something. Um, I think about the overseas reception of the movie, and he was like, "Yeah, like I made this movie for a Korean audience, and it really resonated with a lot of people. And I think that the reason is just because we all live in the society of capitalism." <laughs> she's like very real it's very real um yeah yeah no the the symbolism was so on point like with the son's relationship with the rock oh my god yes he just carries the rock with him 
yeah it's like i can't like i can't let it go like it clings to me like and and then when he actually gets beaten in the head with it by the guy i was like bro this is like yep. so overt <laughs> but then he doesn't even die yeah no he lives, he lives and then he lets go of the rock but then it's like okay but like what happens now though i feel like you're still gonna be stuck in the cycle despite yep. letting go of the rock mm-hmm. so you i think the Poverty whole like, him letting go of the rock is like hope that maybe things will change but you're you don't know <laughs> yeah yeah i'm god there's so much more to talk about with this movie but if we do I will not be able to edit this. <laughs> so I, I suppose we shall wrap around. Um, yeah. Wrap around to to closing out, uh, unfortunately. This movie is probably the best movie I've ever seen, I think. Really? <laughs> I, I don't know if it's my favorite, but I do think it's the sharpest movie I've ever watched. I don't watch a ton of movies, to be mm. fair, but like. I legitimately think that this might be one of the most like well-crafted movies to come out this year. Um, oh yes, for sure. Definitely, definitely this year. I think. Um, I t- yeah. <laughs> Speaking of movies, I watched The Lighthouse recently, which was uh, it's by the same director as the guy who did The Witch. Um, oh, it's very weird. Very weird. Okay. Um, not a super pleasant movie to watch. Hmm. Uh, but. I would say that it's it's an adventure and that maybe if you're interested in like kind of weirder movies you you could you could have a go at it. It's like about two mm-hmm. lighthouse keepers um in some unspecified time and it's really weird. The movie is all in black and white. It's 4 by 3 aspect ratio, which is weird, but you kind of get used to that. And apparently all of the dialogue comes from logs that were written by actual lighthouse keepers. Oh, interesting. Uh, it's also uh, because it's by the director of the witch. It's also an atmospheric horror movie, so you know, uh, sure. Watch for that, I guess. Um, I I thought it was okay. I thought it was good. Um, it's it does a lot of interesting things. Um, I don't know if I would ever watch it again, to be honest. Um, it didn't wasn't exactly my cup of tea. I don't think. Um, hmm. the witch was good though. Did you like the witch? Yeah, the witch was good. Okay. Yeah. Uh, it's definitely weird. It's definitely weird. Um. Mm. But this this movie Parasite was mm, chef's kiss, delicious. It was amazing. So good. I was so good. Really, really stunned. I didn't. I also didn't. I I didn't know until recently that that Bong Joon Ho um uh directed Snowpiercer. I didn't know that. Um, but I did. I did see a video recently um where he made uh John Hurt and Chris Evans, who are in the movie, um do this like Korean like good luck ritual before the shoot where they bow to a pig head. Um, <laughs> and that was, they, they put, the, they pulled the pig head up on an iPad because they're like, yeah, we didn't want to freak him out too much. So we put the pig head on an iPad. Okay, I was going to say, like, oh. <laughs> uh, but then they were like, okay, now you get a bow and, and you just kind of got a kick out of making them do that. Cause they had no idea what the <laughs> fuck was happening, which I thought was pretty funny. Um, but yeah, the, uh, absolutely this was probably my like the best movie that came out this year uh in my opinion and you should definitely definitely watch it if you're not like put off by the like explosive violence that happens at the end of the movie uh i will say i would say it's it's not worse than like any other horror movie that you might see it might actually be tamer it's it's not (laughs) like the the scenes aren't particularly like um graphic they're not like gory 
but they're just so upsetting um, because they are very upset. Emotionally, the, they are they're, upsetting. <laughs> they're emotionally upsetting, but also like kind of visually like the, the the filter for the lighting and everything is like really like it's a broad daylight like stabbing, which is just it's in the middle horrifying. of a garden party, which yeah. is just the wildest thing. <laughs> it, the thing about it is the moments of violence that happen in this movie are so impactful and so powerful because the entire rest of the movie has been sharpening that knife to a point. And when it finally, like, you know, when that situation finally, when that powder keg finally explodes, it's like, whoa. So that's what I mean when I say the violence has a point is that like, it is, it, it's marking that point. Um, the, the shift where like, um, the tone has shifted into this like thing. And you see this like graphic display of violence and, you know, it's it's a lot different from, you know, Korean, a lot of Korean cinema that is, you know, a lot of it is hyper violent for the sake of being hyper violent. Whereas this is violent to make a point about violence, because what the violence that the um, that the uh, husband of the housekeeper inflicts upon um, the daughter and uh, is different from the violence that the um it's slightly different from the violence that the um the father of the Kims inflicts upon the father of the Parks, where mm. um like he just stabs him. Where like mm-hmm. that violence, that moment of violence, is symbolic. It's it's symbolic it's a symbolic returning of the violence that, you know, rich people do to poor people all the time. So it's like mm-hmm. the one moment, like the singularity moment where that relationship is reversed and that's very interesting and also like really like whoa oh it hits it hits it hits mm-hmm. um but yeah uh i would say that it is probably the most memorable movie that i've watched because i'm still thinking about it oh yeah no i i i think i'll be thinking about this movie for years to come and just like just occasionally think about like oh man <laughs> yeah um just just unpacking it in the course of this podcast episode i was like oh my god yeah um but yeah we we really need to wrap up so that we don't go for eight years yeah it's a little bit too late for that already but whatever better late right. than never um who are you where can we find you on the internet what are you who up to am i <laughs> I'm Ranu. You can find me on Twitch and Twitter and Tumblr at Swandron. You can find me on Instagram at Swan.Dron. Um, I'm gonna be calling my family tomorrow. <laughs> oh yeah. Uh and uh you know, making sure they know I love them because this was a movie about family as well. Three different families and they all got hecked up. <laughs> True <laughs> enough. True enough. <laughs> and um yeah, that's that's basically it. The holidays are coming up. I don't know what I'm going to be doing. I will probably do more art stuff than usual. I'm playing through the first Disgaea game on Twitch right now. And that's been a fun time. So, yeah. Come come visit if you want to hang out. <laughs> nice. Yeah, what about you? You can find me all places at Literal Soup. Uh this week I am I'm probably going to play some more Pokémon. Uh I might play a little bit more of this pinball game. Etc. 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 That's it. I think that's all I've got yeah. going on. I mean, I I obviously did stuff with my friends 
because uh, they're home for Thanksgiving break. Um, we went out for food. We're probably going to go out on Saturday, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. That's fun. Yeah, yeah. yeah. See you cool. next time. <laughs> See you next time. <laughs> Wait, do we have to thank Patreon and stuff? Oh, you're right, you're right, yes. I completely <laughs> forgot about everything that we do at the end of the podcast. It's been so long. Our opening is by Scotchy Network, and our ending is by Takuma Okada. And thanks to our patron, Frostfall. Thank you so much for supporting the podcast. Um, news about the podcast. Actually, I set up the video uploading thing, so at some point I will put those up on the Ooh. Vimeo thing so that you can watch our trailer watches. Because I know I've been really bad about this. I have not actually uploaded the video of the trailer watch that I promised that I would upload. Uh-oh. Um, but, you know, uh, it's complicated. It's complicated. There, there were many reasons, many reasons. Um, but yeah, thanks so much for the support. Um, anybody else who's, who's listening, we love you. Thank you. Thank you. And you'll sing to our wonderful commentary about Eat the Rich! See you next time. No! <laughs> Class more to help. ね。